Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Premier, good to have you with us. Great to be back, Roy. It just rubs you the wrong way. It just, it's just, I don't know, I heard about that, the statue coming down, Premier, and I just, I just wondered, and I thought, why haven't we been doing a better job of telling each other about our Canadian history and our schools so that we know where we came from? If we have issues and discussions to have, let's have them. Let's know where we are and where we're going. I agree that's part of this, Roy. It's also part of the contemporary cancel culture uh, where, and let's make no mistake, this was done by people on the extreme left, by uh, the Black Bloc and so-called Antifa. These are uh, basically people of a Marxist extreme left political ideology who believe that, that in, in using violence, and that's what it was. It was violence against a, a public property, against a symbol of Canada. Uh, if you could just look at these people on social media, they're saying... Uh, that not only do they hate McDonald, they hate the country he created. My response to them is, then why do you stay here to enjoy all of the rights, privileges, benefits, and prosperities offered by this country, which would not exist were it not for McDonald? There is at the heart of this a gross hypocrisy. And you have said and you've tweeted out that you would take the pieces of the statue and you would reassemble them outside the Alberta legislature. If the uh, city of Montreal doesn't want to reestablish, reinstall the McDonald statue that has proudly stood there for 125 years, uh, I will offer to take it off their hands uh, at no cost to them and to reassemble it and, and, and securely install it and protect it and defend it. One question is, why were the police standing by watching the statue get torn down? One of the principles of the country that John McDonald helped defend was the principle of the rule of law. Uh, and that was violated flagrantly yesterday by violent anarchists who hate this country. Uh, and uh, I, I, I must say, I, I find, I'm, I'm heartened, however, that the mayor of Montreal has subsequently uh, said uh, publicly that, that they intend to uh, to preserve this, to, to um, restore the statue and apparently reinstall it and protect it properly thereafter. And pleased that the premier of Quebec has condemned this attack, that uh, a former leader of the Parti Québécois has condemned this vandalism, but so far, our Prime Minister has not. No, he hasn't. I checked again. Premier Kennedy, your government is looking at very big and unexpected numbers. Um, Many governments around the world are because of the pandemic. But let's look at Alberta, your, your, your province. Recent years have been difficult for Albertans, and while the provincial revenue is projected at, I think, $38.5 billion, that's over $11 billion short of your budget projection, and the COVID pandemic increased your operational costs by more than $5 billion. Some other big numbers, $8.8 billion GDP drop, provincial debt projected to reach just slightly below $100 billion, and the deficit at $24.2 billion. If I have those correctly, how will you, how can you approach management of these numbers? There's only one way, Roy, and that is to focus on economic growth, on recovery, which is why ours was the first 
a provincial government in Canada, the first government in Canada, to launch a economic recovery plan to get through and pass the COVID crisis. This, uh, the largest global economic contraction in over a century, has hit Alberta especially hard. Because on top of that, uh, we had the biggest collapse in energy prices in history. Uh, three months ago, where I was on your show describing how we were selling Alberta oil at negative prices. And uh, that has obviously uh, hammered a province whose largest industry is uh, oil and gas. And then finally, this is on top of four or five years of economic stagnation in our province. So uh, I, I have been, fr- from the very beginning of the COVID crisis, saying that this is really unprecedented. We, we're facing the greatest economic challenge since the Great Depression in this province. And um, we are prepared, we are, we've laid out a detailed plan. Uh, we're investing unprecedented amounts in capital infrastructure to get construction jobs going and, and help to build the architecture of our future economy. We've reduced our business taxes to amongst the lowest level in North America to uh, incentivize future job-creating investment. We're cutting red tape by at least a third. Uh, we are uh, developing sector strategies to continue diversifying Alberta's economy. But this, we're, we're not going to get out of this deep, deep trough overnight. It's going to take resilience. And here's the good news. The people of Alberta are resilient, and they have an entrepreneurial culture. Ultimately, that's what will get us through this. If only we had a pipeline infrastructure that allowed for national transit and international export of Alberta oil instead of inadequate and federal government delivered roadblocks, which will be in place until at least after the next federal election. And I'm thinking about um, legislation like Bill C-69. Here we are still importing over 700,000 barrels of foreign yeah. oil every day. It's just it's just it's it's beyond stupid. If I may say. Well, Roy, I talked about how the, the, we all of this on top of four or five years of economic fragility. And by the way, uh, we we went from uh, the only problems with a significant uh, surplus uh, now to headed towards one hundred billion dollars debt. This much of that happened, obviously, before covid. And it happened in large part because of the kind of anti-energy policies that you have long criticized and you've just detailed. Next month, we'll be in the Alberta Appeal Court. Uh, launching a constitutional challenge of Bill C-69, what I call the Federal No More Pipelines Act, which for us is a flagrant violation of the province's exclusive authority to regulate the production of natural resources. And we're doing so because we're fighting for our economic lives. We wouldn't have gone through four or five years of economic crisis. We We wouldn't be so... Uh, weakened fiscally and economically to face this crisis if we could actually get Canada's largest uh, natural uh, assets, natural resource assets, our uh, uh, oil sands uh, energy, to global markets through pipelines. But Prime Minister Trudeau cancelled Northern Gateway, killed Energy East, scared away Kinder Morgan on Trans Mountain, and has now created even greater uncertainty. So we are deeply concerned when we hear the Deputy Prime Minister, the new Minister of Finance, Christia Freeland, for whom I have considerable respect, saying that the government's focus will now be on new green policies. I don't know what that means, but if it means further hammering the energy sector, which is the largest sector of the Canadian economy, I, I really am concerned that's going to further damage jobs at a critical moment and will damage national unity. Um, the national unity issue is something that was raised in a letter that was signed by six premiers, including you, 
that was sent to Justin Trudeau last uh, last fall. And we have to remember that we were in fragile economic reality uh, turf before the pandemic hit. Premier, what happens to transfer payments? Yeah, well, if Alberta becomes a have-not province, uh, you can't get money from a blood from a stone, uh, Roy. The, Alberta is the goose that's laid, laid the golden egg in our system of fiscal federalism for the past half century. Over $600 billion of net contribution to the rest of the country, uh, primarily eastern Canada, uh, central and eastern Canada, um, that has benefited indirectly from the enormous resource wealth developed by Albertans. Uh, and we're proud to have played that role. But if, if the federal policies and, and sometimes other provinces and interest groups continue to block our energy and, and drive the country's largest sector uh, into a sustained crisis, then all of us as Canadians will be poor. There will be less in terms of equalization and federal wealth to support health care, education, infrastructure and social programs um, from the Saskatchewan Manitoba border to the Atlantic Ocean. Premier, let me ask you one more question. Uh, go back to the issues, the challenges that you're facing with what's happened with the the oil industry and uh, and the pandemic and the numbers that you're looking at. What happens to individual Albertans as far as taxes are concerned? And what are your projections on unemployment? Well, our, our official unemployment rate now is about 13%. I, I think the real unemployment rate is probably at least five points higher than that if you account for the folks who, who just left the labor market, given up looking for work altogether. So we uh, probably have the highest unemployment in the country, possible exception of Newfoundland, which is also facing the double whammy because of their um, large energy sector that's also been clobbered. Uh, and, and that's, by the way, uh, oil and gas is not just an Alberta issue. It is a Canadian issue. So um, the, the, the real human consequences of this are devastating. We see it in the, in the Dean Express, for example, in an addictions, opioid and mental health crisis which is why we're investing unprecedented amounts of money in treatment and recovery programs to help people out of the trap of addiction. But uh, it, it, it truly is a crisis. And, and I, I say, I'll tell you, Roy, that I do appreciate in our weekly meetings with other premiers an understanding of that amongst my colleagues in the other provinces. I'd like to see a similar understanding coming from the government of Canada. Sam, when I read your, 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 your story, it's actually it's like a... 007 script inside the Chinese military attack on, on Nortel, except it's real. It really happened, and it happened to a huge company in this country, was a world leader, and it just went, well, disappeared, and so did my investment. But um, thanks for coming on, and I just want to talk to you about this. 2004, Sam, Nortel's cybersecurity advisor, you write Brian Shields, was investigating a serious breach of the, quote, telecom giant's network, someone wanted Nortel's secrets, end quote, and the trail led to Shanghai. What was going on then? That's right. Uh, in, in 2004, Mr. Shields, who's a top cybersecurity investigator for Nortel at the time, was asked to investigate a, a very interesting breach. Seven Nortel managers had their email accounts hacked. Uh, they, they found out the first one, uh, uh, someone in Britain emailed him. Uh, this was an Ottawa-based executive and said, hey, you downloaded a lot of interesting docs from our secure server. Uh, what's going on? And the executive emailed back from Ottawa, that wasn't me. So, uh, Houston, we have a problem. Uh, Brian Shields comes in. He, does, he soon discovers it's seven executives that have been breached this way. An amazing amount of uh, intellectual property 
has been extracted to a, 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 what looked like a building or a room full of web servers in Shanghai. And that was his first clue that this wasn't some random cyber criminal. By looking, uh, I'll boil it down very simple, by doing some online sleuthing, he found the way these uh, web addresses that were extracting data were arranged, it had to be someone with control of China's Internet. In other words, it was the Chinese Communist Party, and he eventually found out it was uh, the People's Liberation Army top cyber war unit, uh, or what looked like it. It was actually... uh, he, he discovered that it looked like an army-style hack, and then later a, a U.S. cyber security firm confirmed, yes, it was this cyber war unit that is directed right from the top of China's Politburo to target the most elite assets in North America, whether they're political, nuclear, uh, oil companies, or tech giants like Nortel, so that China yeah. can uh, steal and grow the areas of its economy that it wants to. It really does read like a 007 script, and we become aware as we read your, your, your piece, Sam, of the insidious nature of the invasion, as it is, not a military invasion, but it is an invasion of North America and the West by China. Perhaps we should really uh, you know, create the, the context here. Remind us of the significance of Nortel internationally when it was at its peak entering into the 2000s. Nortel at, at its peak, uh, we all know there was a tech bubble, and Nortel, like many companies, had some problems. But uh, this, this company was, uh, was leading towards the future that we see in front of us now, which is 5G technology. Uh, we don't even quite know uh, how important it is yet, but really it, it's the key to the future. At that time, these were just... Uh, you know, very innovative documents in in Nortel's secret portfolios about what 5G, 3G, and 4G would look like. But they were the leader in internet technology. Again, think back to 2000. This was all very new. We were all discovering, you know, that we can keep keep in touch with people worldwide through the internet. Yes. And uh, Nortel was the world leader. 70% of the world's traffic traveled on Canadian technology. Canada was the leader. We had the key to the future. And what I found in this story, uh, I I didn't just talk to cyber hacking experts. I talked to Canadian intelligence sources, and they all realized that uh, back into the 1990s, China, at a very high level, had picked Nortel as probably one of the, the, the top targets in the world because China saw it as key to its telecommunications future. And there was just many lines of espionage going into Nortel, some very interesting human espionage, massive planting of bugs, efforts uh, to compromise Nortel's top managers. So to just break that one down for you, this would be Chinese military spies, undercover agents uh, coming from different areas of uh, the, the Chinese economy and culture, trying to get leaders in that company to flip to the Chinese side. And, and uh, yeah. one of my intelligence sources said when he looks back at the case, at the time he, he knew something was going on. He warned Nortel. They didn't respond. And now looking back at the case, he fears there was a, a type of corruption where managers could have been compromised, not only in Nortel, uh, leaders in, Can- in Canada's government. And that is why Canada's law enforcement intelligence knew this was going on. 
but it just it, it wasn't stopped. Well, that was so frustrating. Sam, that was so frustrating as I read your piece, this uh, Brian Shields, the investigator, the, advi- the security advisor, um, he, he told the Nortel execs about the, uh, the hackers he was tracking, and they weren't interested and never closed the door, but here's part B to that, and you write this, I mean, this hits you right between the eyes when you read your piece, and that is when Nortel began to spin out of financial control in stepped of all companies, one we'd never heard of, named Huawei. That that's a that's it right there. And and so the people I talk to are people that are very familiar with cyber war. They're familiar with espionage, and they're familiar with the military tactics of China. So what they say is that through many different tactics, uh, Huawei was the beneficiary of this uh, indisputable stealing that was happening from Beijing and Shanghai of Nortel's future secrets, the keys to 5G, 3G, and 4G. And they say that that it's very clear that uh, this technology benefited Huawei. They can connect the dots and they can, uh, you know, just the timeline. Nortel collapses in 2009. Huawei is able to scoop up assets. And let, let us backtrack for a minute. Huawei was able to underbid uh, uh, Nortel on very key contracts up to, that, up to that date in 2009. It's almost like they're sort of bleeding them out of business. And when Nortel falls, Huawei very quickly rises and takes that uh, world-leading position. And that's where we are right now. As we look yeah. at 5G, com- uh, countries around the world, some are blocking the door. Canada, not yet. We're still considering a Huawei 5G network. So, Sam, uh, Ottawa was aware, or there were people were trying to make them aware of what was going on, and nothing much was being done. Can you talk to us about that, and does this now carry over? Because you just touched on 5G and Huawei before we took the break. Does this carry over? Does, is there a similarity developing now as far as China's 5G network is concerned? Right. Well, first of all, uh, you're, you're exactly right. Uh, RCMP knew what was going on. CSIS knew what was going on. Nortel's management uh, was warned by CSIS about what was going on. And uh, the RCMP investigated this hacking complaint in 2004. But the problem is that uh, RCMP just does not have the capacity. It, it didn't really even have the jurisdiction uh, to, to look at a state-sponsored massive cyber espionage campaign against what is really our industrial complex. And uh, so uh, an intelligence source quoted in the story made an interesting analogy. It was like one of those games of volleyball where all the players see the ball and call it, and then no one goes for it. The ball drops on the floor. That's what happened with Nortel. For whatever reason, uh, uh, some think there could be nefarious reasons. Uh, Some think it was just a case where Canada simply uh, had its head in the sand and didn't have the capacity that uh, countries like the United States, of course, with its FBI, if their uh, important industries are attacked, their law enforcement and intelligence is going to step in and do its best to stop it. But that didn't happen in the case of Nortel. One reason some people think is that cyber uh, espionage was so new, in fairness, in the early 2000s, and Canada's government just wasn't, didn't have the intellectual foresight, really, to realize how important Nortel was, one, and how insidious uh, China's attack through many different channels on Nortel was for the second point. And uh, the result is Nortel fell. 
uh, you're, you're asking about Huawei 5G. This really is a perfect circle because although it has not been alleged in Canada that Huawei was involved in this hack on Nortel, and I should say right now, Huawei strongly denies it. China's government has not answered uh, our questions for this story. But in the United States, the FBI has alleged that uh, Huawei was directly involved in espionage on a number of American telecoms to steal technology with stolen R&D, cut their costs so they could go in and underbid all these companies, steal their market share, and what do you know, suddenly Huawei is a world leader. Well, my sources say uh, that looks very similar what happened to Nortel, but Nortel was a bigger scale problem. So uh, let's, let's uh, jump ahead. Where are we now? Well, again, let's talk about the perfect circle. If Huawei uh, used or, or benefited from China's espionage and military, stealing all these secrets from uh, North American, European companies, Huawei also allegedly was involved in espionage. Once it, once it grows its network, it's allegedly spying on politicians uh, in other countries that may be critical of uh, authoritarians around the world or even critical of China. Therefore, perfect circle. Huawei is connected to Chinese intelligence security is what is alleged in the United States. Uh, we don't hear those allegations in Canada yet from our government. But here's the rub. Uh, Hong Kong Canadian dissidents say they're already being spied on with smaller apps such as WeChat and TikTok by the Chinese Communist Party. They say they're, they're receiving threats, harassment, rape threats, and they say Canada cannot protect them. And they say if a Huawei 5G network is allowed by Ottawa, it, it, really their lives will be held. And again, it, the Hong Kong Canadians are on the front of this line. But make no mistake, uh, the experts I talk to say each and every person in Canada could be a target of the Chinese Communist Party, uh, especially people that stand up and are critical of that regime in Beijing. And you are. In my case, uh, I can tell you, Roy, that uh, you've noticed that I've done some hard-hitting reporting yes. on this regime that uh, you know people accuse of committing genocide within its borders on a whole population of Uyghurs. Uh, so certainly within reason that that government uh, in China is deserving of some harsh, hard scrutiny. Yes, uh, I can tell you that, uh, you know, I've confirmed with with uh, people that know that China's government has taken notice of my reporting. And uh, it appears that actors linked to that that regime in Canada uh, are indeed trying to slow down or silence these critical reports. And uh, let me tell you, so that's an attack what I, from my view on, on freedom of, on the Canadian press and uh, I, some of the experts I talk to, uh, it won't stop uh, you know, with one or two tough critics wherever they are. It won't stop with a you know, Hong Kong Canadian dissidents. It's growing and China is becoming more and more aggressive, more expansive in its efforts to control what people think and, uh, you know, think and say. Yeah, and it is concerning. On a personal level, even though you're a professional journalist and you're very good at it, you're excellent at it, and you're doing the stories and you're doing what you're, where, where the story leads you, you're, you're reporting to Canadians what's going on and what's happened. But on a personal level, it, uh, the, when it's like that, when you're experiencing what you're experiencing and what you just shared with us, uh, Sam, that is personally worrisome. I know it. Um, 
I want to tell everybody as well that they should follow you on Twitter, at Scooper Cooper. I have 30 seconds. I wish I had 30 minutes. The vaccine story, what's what's the 30-second version of that? The 30-second version is uh, I think reasonable people would say that Ottawa made a bad decision doing its major vaccine research partnership with a company in China that is directly linked to the People's Liberation Army again. And uh, we found that uh, suddenly uh, China's leaders reneged on their agreement to send these vaccine materials to Canada where they could be tested. And, our, you know, and if, it was, uh, if it passed safety and effectiveness tests, we would have been front of line for this vaccine. It's been stopped for political reasons. And China is sending it to other countries that it has you know, no pre-existing okay. agreements with. The lesson is you cannot do business with Chinese companies connected to the People's Liberation Army. The spokesman for the foreign ministry in China about 10 days ago made it clear that if Canada wants to see any movement in the True Michaels case, well, then they know what to do. Well, we need we know what to do. And what we need to do is set Meng Wanzhou free. But there is a treaty with the United States. Sam Cooper was talking to us as well about the uh, fall of, um, of Nortel and the uh, Chinese military's attack. Sam's story is headlined, Inside the Chinese Military Attack on Nortel. It sounds like a 007 film. Guy Saint-Jacques is the former Canadian ambassador to China, 2012 to uh, 2016. And we've spoken with the ambassador in the past. He's come back on the program. Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much for taking the time. Well, uh, thank you for the invitation, Mr. Green. How worrisome is it to you, just generically, just generally, how worrisome are China's actions to you? Well, uh, I agree with you that uh, Mr. Cooper's uh, reporting is first class. And in fact, we have to be concerned about the uh, systematic attempts by the government to get uh, legally and illegally uh, all technology that they feel they need to achieve uh, their development goals. And in the we have known for a long time that uh, the uh, Chinese military are experts at uh, uh, electronic uh, spying. In fact, when I was ambassador, I would tell a Canadian uh, company representative, are, uh, are you sure that your uh, systems are well protected? Because if you have interesting technology, uh, you can bet that the Chinese will try to uh, get into your uh, servers and your computers and and we are also aware that some chinese companies want our canadian companies in one case they went into the computers of the law firm that was advising the canadian company of course when you are negotiating the purchase of the company it always helps to know what is the bottom price that the company will accept to to sell to you so I think for all those reasons, uh, we have to stop being complacent and recognize that uh, uh, China will uh, resort to those means uh, whenever it can. And that's why also every time we find a case of uh, spying, we should react very strongly. So um, Sam Cooper's story, his uh, account of how the Chinese military attacked Nortel and essentially um, if we take Sam's story and we put it all together, we get to the end. Essentially destroyed Nortel. That that sounds very believable to you. Well, you know, the, uh, uh, when I was in government, uh, we had very strong suspicions that the 
this is what happened, that in fact, uh, uh, despite the, uh, the, the, the firewalls that uh, Nortel had put in place, those were not uh, robust enough to deter the, uh, the Chinese uh, uh, spies. And in fact, look at the demise of uh, Nortel. It coincides with the, um, uh, the rising of Huawei. And we know also the number of uh, scientists who were working for Nortel uh, went to work for Huawei afterwards. And, you know, the I don't think that we had enough uh, smoking guns to be able to uh, launch uh, uh, formal accusations against uh, the uh, the Chinese government. But, uh, in fact, uh, there are enough circumstantial uh, evidence, I would say, that to, to have very strong suspicion that this is what uh, happened. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, how does it work uh, if the government of Canada has a really deep concern about something that another government is doing, in your case, when you're in Beijing, the, 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 the Chinese government? How do you convey that concern? Who do you talk to? And how do they then, in turn, respond? Do they, are you the person who delivers the message and they deliver the counter-message to you? Well, I would say it depends issue, but I, I would say the, the only language that uh, China understand is uh, uh, firmness. And if you are not ready to be firm and to, to speak out, uh, they will just continue to, uh, with their uh, uh, behavior and with their actions. And, uh, and so in a, in a case like this, <clears throat> uh, I, I think that uh, uh, and we have very good uh, technicians in, in Ottawa at uh, the Canadian Security Establishment at CSIS, uh, uh, and also the, there's great work that is done at the University of Toronto. And so once we have enough evidence, I think it's a matter then to go to the Chinese authorities, and, and it can be done by the ambassador. It's a, a very important uh, uh, situation that has happened. Otherwise, you know, at the embassy. But I would say every time you have to go in and speak forcefully. Uh, I recall when I uh, was ambassador, we had a case where Chinese investigators were coming to Canada to uh, uh, meet with uh, uh, so-called the economic fugitive, and we had negotiated a protocol whereby no meeting. And once the uh, visit completed, uh, I learned from uh, CSIS that, in fact, the delegation, the Chinese delegation, had uh, other meetings that were not uh, scheduled. And I said, well, give me enough evidence and I'll go in. I went to meet with the vice minister of the Ministry of uh, Public Security that uh, had uh, organized the visit. And I asked him, uh, well, uh, what's your... Uh, views on the visit, and he said, oh, extremely pleased, thank you for your collaboration, everything went fine, and I said, well, how would you feel if uh, you invite guests to your house, and after you're gone, you realize that the silver is missing, and so on, and he said, what do you mean? I said, well, your guys thought that they were very smart, but let me give you examples of what they did. They weren't, uh, this was totally contrary to the protocol we had negotiated, and if this occurs one other time, that will be it. <clears throat> no Chinese inspector will be allowed to come back. And he said this will never happen again. 
And I think this is the, the type of message that you have to be ready to deliver. Once you catch them interfering in Canadian affairs or in the spying, you know, each time we should react very strongly. In fact, in the case of spying, if we can lay uh, criminal charges, that's what we should do. Uh, because otherwise, again, uh, I would say that the Chinese will, will say, well, the Canadians are uh, lap dogs and they won't do anything. The coronavirus uh, vaccine development that was announced with great fanfare in May, combining Canada and uh, China, has just arbitrarily been halted by China in the last few days. How do you interpret that? Well, I see this as a, a new low uh, in the relationship. Uh, first, uh, I thought that maybe the Chinese wanted to uh, make sure that the uh, vaccine would be developed in China, that it could get all the credit, and therefore they, they, they were reluctant to send the uh, material for the test. But then I learned that, in fact, they have sent the, uh, the, the same material to uh, other countries uh, with which they have good relations, like uh, Brazil, and I think it's uh, just another demonstration of how much uh, pressure they, they want to put on the Canadian government uh, and to, to force us to release Mrs. Mung. So I uh, think, you know, it's very sad because in the uh, field of uh, health, the uh, health, in fact, that uh, we have a long history of collaboration with uh, China. The, it was Canadian missionaries that uh, created uh, the, the largest hospital in China, in uh, Chengdu, and that was uh, at, the, at the end of the 19th century. Uh, then, of course, you had Dr. Norman Bethune, but more recently there were a number of uh, exchange programs. Uh, and so I would have thought that in this case, uh, because it's a concern uh, about health, and, and we know also that China has been acting uh, on the international scene to portray itself as the uh, the savior of the world with the COVID-19 by first sending material, and now they say that once they will have a vaccine, they will share. But at the same time, I think it's another example of China talking on both sides of their mouth, because in this case, uh, it was uh, obviously to uh, punish Canada that uh, didn't uh, that they stopped the uh, the shipment of this uh, uh, vaccine mm-hmm. when you talk about them punishing canada one of the things that china has done the g government has done is to uh, essentially abduct two canadians uh, michael spavor and michael Korvig, and hold them and uh, as i said a few days ago their foreign ministry spokesman basically said to Canada, the Canadian government, if you wanted things to change, then you have, you know, you know what you have to do. What do you think is happening to the two Michaels? Um, what, what would be going on in their lives now? Well, I think they are continuing to go through a very uh, tough period because we know that in the case of uh, Michael's favor, he is detained in the city of Dandong, which is on the border with uh, North Korea. That's where he was uh, arrested. He is in a cell uh, with uh, 19 uh, Chinese prisoners. Uh, uh, I think he is allowed to go outside uh, 15, 20 minutes uh, a day. In the case of uh, Michael Kovrick, he is detained in uh, Beijing. Uh, There are fewer people in his cell, but in both cases, the the lights are on 24 hours a day. There's only one uh, toilet uh, for all the, the prisoners in the cell. 
Uh, and uh, in fact, in the case of Michael Kovrick, he had said that uh, he had not seen the sun, I think it was over uh, nine months. Uh, and now I assume that he is allowed to go outside but just for <clears throat> three minutes a day. Uh, what is also possible is that uh, China has not allowed any consular visit to Mr. Kovrick ever since uh, uh, they claim that, uh, you know, because of the pandemic, it would not allow those visits to take place. But at the same time, here they are claiming that they uh, got rid of the disease. And why is it that they won't allow uh, the ambassador and his uh, consular officials to be able to go and visit the, the two prisoners to really know uh, what is their mental uh, status and their physical status? And uh, <clears throat> I know that this was discussed by Minister Champagne with his counterpart, uh, Wang Yi, when they, they met in, in Rome, but in fact, we have to put more pressure on them. They have to uh, respect the uh, Vienna Convention on Consular Relations that uh, is very clear on the visit of, uh, of uh, prisoners. And, uh, uh, you know, it's another example of China uh, being uh, unnecessarily tough uh, uh, with, uh, with Canada. Uh, I have one more question for you. Actually, I have a lot more, but I'll just ask you one. What you're telling, what you're sharing with us today and what you've shared with us in the recent past when you've been on the program, the prime minister's office didn't want you to do that. Uh, they got in touch with you and they got in touch with uh, uh, David Mulroney, former, also former Canadian ambassador to China, and they told you to stop, did they not? Well, in... Uh in fact, this happened in early July uh, last year, and uh, there was a new assistant deputy minister at Glo Global Affairs. And when he phoned me, he indicated that he was relaying a message that came from the prime minister's office. But, uh, you know, I said, well, uh, what's the problem? Did I say something that they didn't like? He said, well, you know, it's important to speak from uh, one voice and and eventually I told him, I said, well, you know, uh, I'm a big boy. Uh, if someone in the prime minister's office wants to speak to me, uh, they have my phone number and tell them to phone me. But, uh, you know, I am puzzled. And I said, by the way, uh, I have, I, I, you know, I, I would like to help the government, but I have no clue of what's the, the strategy for <clears throat> getting our two uh, my out of China. And to this day, I must say, I, I still I still don't know what is the, the strategy because in fact we have been down we have uh, refrained from criticizing uh, China for what they are doing in Xinjiang which is uh, awful you know with one uh, more than one minute right jail what doing in Hong Kong where they are reneging on the agreement that they had that to keep uh, uh, Hong Kong autonomous yeah. and, and Ambassador, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I've done this to you before, but I have to jump in because our our time is up. But I, I do appreciate you uh, you coming on the program. Would you say is there a case to be made that we're transitioning from from uh, the first wave of the pandemic to the second wave of COVID? Because if that case is being made, and my listener did make that case, it would suggest that you know it's just inevitable. So, you know, it depends on what, how you're viewing this pandemic. I think as a nation, we are in an omnipresent wave. It has not 
gone down in a sense. We're still, you know, experiencing our first wave uh, really as, as a nation. But a lot of these states, and I'm in the state of New York, and we were the original epicenter uh, of the United States. We certainly are now preparing for a second wave um, and working very diligently uh, towards preparing for a resurgence of COVID-19. So it depends on, you know, I think from a state standpoint, some states are going to be facing potentially a second wave or the third wave, depending on where they're at in the timeline of COVID-19. But as a nation, we are still in our first wave. Uh, New York City seemed to many people in North America to be the canary in the coal mine. We received so many stories. We had so much information about the overloading of New York City hospitals in, in the early stages in March and April. Um, what is it like now, and uh, how much capacity do you have in New York City, in the hospitals, if a second wave hits? New York City is in a much, much better position than a number of different states uh, here in the United States. During the surge or the height of COVID-19, you know, we were seeing thousands and thousands of cases walking in through hospitals. Because we were the first epicenter, it was also learning a lot as, you know, we were responding to the outbreak. And so the states that experienced a surge of cases after New York City really um, had the upper hand in terms of learning a lot of our lessons. And some of these lessons, you know, to give you an example, is um, the power of proning not being able to, not ventilating patients right away, but providing, you know, supplemental oxygen and other type of clinical management techniques that, you know, I think for New York City, uh, I wouldn't even say discovered, but, you know, we, we found to be, you know, much, much better in terms of clinical management. And so now what we're seeing being past our first wave and only having a very few number of cases, in fact, you know, just uh, over the last couple of uh, days, New York State has done close to 100,000 COVID-19 tests. And out of those, you know, over, uh, you know, 100,000 COVID-19 tests, we have less than 1% positive, which is amazing. I mean, that's, you know, nowhere where we were starting off in the COVID-19 pandemic. So that really shows you we've come a very, very long way. But that's not to say that things can take a turn for the worst uh, at any given time frame. And this is why there are a couple of different benchmarks that not only are we looking at, but also in a number of other states. And so some of these benchmarks include making sure that, for example, we see a two-week drop in, in cases. We also have at least 40% of our ICU beds available because sh should we start seeing more number of cases uh, and should we start surging again, we want to make sure that we have hospital uh, availability. Because what we don't want to do is go back to that crisis standard of care. Because once you you know, step into that crisis standards of care, that's when you tend to see more deaths, more morbidity, because hospitals are getting overwhelmed. And we certainly do not want to experience that again. Dr. Madad, when you tweeted out, and I'm paraphrasing, but when you tweeted out, it didn't need to be as bad as it is. What did you mean? You know, I think from the very start of this pandemic, there's been a series of missteps and lost opportunities that really has plagued this nation's response from the get-go. Uh, and to give you an example, I think as everybody very well is, is aware, you know, the failure first to take the pandemic seriously as, you know, it engulfed China. And then we had a very deeply flawed effort to provide broad testing uh, for the virus that left the country blind 
to the extent of the crisis. So we were, you know, brewing so much of the virus in the country and we were blind to it until we started to ramp up testing. And even now we don't have enough testing uh, to match really the need to go back to any sense of normalcy, if you will. And so, you know, I think after milestone after milestone, U.S. has been behind the eight ball. And instead of being two steps ahead of this virus, we're 10 steps back. And I think one of the biggest issues that is also plaguing this pandemic is the poor messaging problem. You know, that's been a huge, huge uh, failure uh, in terms of the federal leadership. Uh, and on top of that, the, the guidance. Um, and I think to put that even in further context, the most powerful weapon you know, that we have right now against COVID-19, as everyone knows, is the buy-in from the public to do behavioral changes, wearing a mask, you know, keeping your distance. And when you have poor public messaging, erratic public messaging, you're now undermining trust, which you absolutely need. And this is not just for COVID-19. You know, I've been part of many different epidemics and pandemics over many years. And the core response boils down to trust and making sure people understand what you're trying to accomplish so that way they can abide by it. And if you don't have that, then you're not going to have a coherent uh, and safe response to uh, an epidemic or a pandemic. If I can just take that thought and move it a little bit over to the, uh, the issue of vaccines. First of all, what would your ballpark guess be for everybody asks you this? I'm sure everybody asks every doctor this. When can we expect vaccines that really will be um, able to be distributed globally and and effectively? Um, and, and what do you say to a significant percentage of the population in your country and in ours who would say, we don't trust vaccines? I mean, I'm one person, as soon as a vaccine is, 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 is delivered and is, uh, and I'm going to get emails about this, as soon as a vaccine is available and it's it's proven to be effective, I'm lining up. But there are people who don't trust and don't want it. What do you say to that? Well, vaccine hesitancy first is one of the top 10 global health threats around the world. So, and this is not something new that we're experiencing with COVID-19. This is something that has been around for, for decades. Uh, in fact, you know, one of the last epidemics that uh, I responded to right before COVID-19 was the measles epidemic that we had in New York City, which was one of the first, uh, the worst since 1992. Uh, and there was a huge anti-vax movement. Um, and I learned a lot about just underestimating the anti-vax movement generally. And I think now, you know, pivoting to COVID-19, I think, as you stated in your question, what's really important is making sure that we have a safe and effective vaccine. And those two words mean very different things. And they boil down to really looking at the data. And you can't have good data until a period of time. So you can't fast track safety and and uh, efficacy because you need a certain percentage of time or a certain time frame to collect that information. So typically when we're talking about phase three trials, it could be anywhere from a year to two years. And you're actually looking at various benchmarks uh, to see, is this vaccine safe? Is it actually effective? Does it work? And so in order for us to even say we're going to have a vaccine available by the end of this year or early next year, we really need to first see where what is the data showing us. And right now, a number of different you know vaccines are, are in phase three clinical trials, and they do look promising. But it's still way too early to make any assumptions that we're going to have a vaccine available, you know, in uh, October, in November, in December. And I think on top of that, saying something like that uh, is also irresponsible because, you know, that is showing that 
you know, perhaps there's going to be some sort of a warp speed in trying to collect this information. And you really want to make sure that you are taking the time to get this data right, because this is this is something that we're not giving to people that are sick. These are healthy people that are going to get vaccinated. Right. So we absolutely need to make sure that we have the correct information before we provide these types of uh, you know services like you know uh, administering vaccines. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.